Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we will continue to explore the interface of clinical medicine and biotechnology. We're fortunate to have Dr. Robert Sweet with us. Dr. Sweet is the executive director of the Whammy Institute for Simulation Health. Dr. Sweet is also the executive director for the Research and Education and Simulation Technologies, University of Washington. Dr. Sweet is a Professor of Urology, University of Washington School of Medicine, and is the medical director of the Kidney Stone Program at the University of Washington. This is an innovative and comprehensive kidney stone program that deals not only in treatment of stones, but prevention. Dr. Sweet received his medical degree from the University of Minnesota in 1997. He was a member of the medical honorary Alpha Omega Alpha. He then went to the University of Washington, where he completed his urology residency in 2003. He became an attending physician and acting assistant professor of urology and held a two-year health policy scholarship focused on simulation sciences from the American Foundation for Urological Diseases. In 2004, Dr. Sweet co-founded the Institute for Surgical and Interventional Simulation at the University of Washington. He then moved to the University of Minnesota, where he was an associate professor of urology and directed the medical school simulation programs and the kidney stone program. He then returned to the University of Washington, where he is a professor and is the principal investigator for numerous simulation research and developmental projects, where he is the principal investigator of numerous simulation research and development projects. Dr. Sweet, welcome, and thank you for joining us. You have some very, very interesting technology. First of all, you have some technology directed towards simulation and training. Many people assume all surgeons have the same training. We certainly strive for that. But simulation can really help a surgical trainee and even surgeons learning new techniques. So explore a little bit with our audience about what simulation is, how it interfaces with surgical education, and what you've done. Thanks for having me on your podcast here. Yeah, simulation is a really exciting area that's really evolved over the last 15 years or so in healthcare. You're talking about surgery specifically, but I'd almost, if I can, 
love to expand that. It goes beyond surgery and involves all members of the healthcare team. We're even beginning to use the concept of simulation for education for patients as well. And it means, if you say the word simulation, it means a lot of different things to different people depending on their experience. But really what it is, is recreating an environment or recreating a task, even recreating a disease that isn't the actual environment and using that for training purposes so that when an individual actually experiences that in real life, they're prepared. But in that way, they're prepared in a safer environment rather than learning on the job like you and I did during our training, everything we learned, a lot of it was either out of a textbook or then, you know, on the job training where we got that experience. But anything we can do to recreate that environment and the models that we use, no matter what they are, really is simulation. And so with the advent of different modalities, and as we become more digital, those capabilities have expanded. So give us a little example. I mean, people are imagining, are you watching a video? Is it a video game? Or is there actually uh, something in somebody's hands that's real and something that somebody is manipulating in real time? I mean, like you said, simulation is something different. So go ahead. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a great question. And it's really uh, interesting because I got involved in it really as, you know, an older Gen Xer, right, where we were And I really kind of saw as I was learning technical skills in urology, which you and I are both, you know, do clinically, I was watching one of my attendees who was doing a case and watching them do it and staring at a screen. I'm like, it looks like he's playing a video game. I mean, that's what I thought, said to myself. And I said, what could I do? Could I build something, maybe a video game to train this so that I could go home and practice this? Because otherwise, trying to learn this skill on this particular patient, I could see being really challenging and take me a really long time before I was as good as that doctor I was seeing at the time. That was the inspiration, really. And I did some research checking. This is in the late 90s. And I found a wonderful resource here on our campus at University of Washington when I was in my training that was on the forefront of virtual reality. And they had done a project that was sort of similar for head and neck training in surgery, where they took a scope and they put it through a virtual environment and practiced navigating a scope in that environment. And I looked at it and I said, you know, we can do this. And we got some funding and we actually built and then commercialized one of the first virtual reality training systems for a surgical procedure. And I was hooked at that point. I really got excited. There was a lot of excitement around it. It was fun. It was new at the time. And this is late 90s, early 2000s. But that's just one modality. I mean, you talk about using mannequins, talk about virtual reality, computer-based type uh, things. There's things called, we call augmented reality, where, you know, now people are pretty familiar with that now in in the world, mixed reality, where you use physical and virtual environments together. These are are all different ways to, again, practice certain skills or encounter environments that you haven't, may or may not see in your training, formal training, so that you're prepared in the end when you actually encounter them. So to give some background to people who are listening, my era of training when we were doing what was called an endoscopic procedure that was through a scope, the only person who could see what was being operated on was the operator. There was a scope with a lens and we looked through the lens 
and the training supervisor <laughs> at that point, depending how their comfort level was with what you were doing, let you go to a point before they looked in. And then we had the ability to put a camera on that lens so two people or more could look up at a screen and you operated by watching through a screen, but you were still operating through a lens. And then as we have moved along and become less invasive and less open surgery and replace that with laparoscopic techniques where scopes are inserted and there's a camera or two cameras observing what the operator is doing with other instruments, again, it's visualized on a screen so that people can see what's happening without the patient being opened. So that has given you an avenue now where you can put these instruments in the hands of a trainee and create a surgical simulation. Again, you're going beyond surgery. We'll talk about that. But for surgeons, you know, what would happen if I walked into your workshop? Give me an example with the procedure. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different procedures that we we're working on now that go beyond yours in my field, urology. I mean, we're doing things for paramedics. We're doing things for, we've done and built systems, continue to do that for the military, U.S. military, and emergency medicine physicians, internal medicine physicians, pediatricians, you name it, orthopods, neurosurgeons, otolaryngology or head and neck surgeons. We've really worked on systems and techniques, okay? There's one thing about you teaching those tactile, physical skills of doing something and intervention in medicine, but there's some of that we call non-technical skills that are also important. And these are some techniques that we use and very common with anesthesia and internal medicine where we teach things like professionalism, okay? You can use simulation for that. That's been done for a long time, really focusing on communication with teams and doing what we call debriefs after scenarios. You really create something bad or very uncomfortable for a group of people that happens. And it's really, you let it kind of happen in a, an environment and you film it. And then you have people sit in a room and say, what just happened? But you recreate something that's really uncomfortable and it forces people to do things and it's still a safe environment, right? Because it's not real. And time and time again, we hear back from people who have gone through this experience telling us, you know what? It happened to me. That thing that you trained us for, that actually happened. And I knew what to do. And the key is I also know, learn some of the communication tricks to better work with my team members. And so we're using the same language and an effective means of making sure there's, we call a shared mental model where everyone's on the same page, what we're doing. It is advancement in training and team preparedness. I remember at a Seattle Surgical Society, Al Haynes, who had passed away, but he was the United Airlines captain. And, you know, the plane that he brought down as best he could into a cornfield. And he said what really saved so many people was training, 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 training. Yeah. And, you know, there we oftentimes use the analogy of, of airline pilots when we talk about healthcare simulation, because there's not a single pilot that hasn't worked on an airline simulator for every single plane that they're allowed to fly, you know. I don't know how many hours, but it's hundreds of hours at least on the simulators before they're obviously allowed to take family members' lives and into their hands or anyone's lives into their own hands as a passenger, I should say. And so that is, you know, why is it any different for us? The one big difference for us, though, is our model. We, you know, mankind, we built 
the airplane. Like we know what it's made of. We know what the materials are. We can kind of predict what it'll do. And so modeling an airplane is much easier for us than modeling the human body, which, you know, which is the whole <laughs> biology and understanding pathophysiology down and trying to predict what human tissue and human behavior, what we're going to do. I mean, you can only simulate what you know in the real world. And we're still discovering things about the human body. And so it, that makes simulating it very challenging. An airplane's much more predictable. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. I mean, they come off a production line and they've pretty much hopefully all come off the same. So, you know, I don't want to get too technical, but again, if I walked into your workshop, let's just take a procedure where we have to operate on a kidney for a kidney tumor. And I want to put a scope and learn into the cavity where the kidney exists and learn how to either take a tumor off and leave the kidney, or if the whole kidney has to be removed, take the whole kidney and find the appropriate blood vessels and the appropriate steps, know what's around, meaning intestines and other structures and big blood vessels that we don't want to injure. So how do you do that? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways you could do that. A lot of different modalities. One that's pretty popular out there that's being done, one of my colleagues at University of Rochester actually is doing a lot of this, where they'll actually take patient-specific data and then do a 3D print of an outside mold of what it would look like and then you know, actually recreate that very case and then let someone, what's called hydrogel material, and then actually rehearse it on that particular patient, that model. Now, I mean, it sounds like, you know, well, that's amazing. I, I mean, there are some caveats here. It takes a long time to be, make each of these models. It's not real practical. They'll do it, you know, on a high volume basis, but it's neat because it is patient specific. You are literally rehearsing some of the, you know, understanding some of the anatomy and some of the nuances of, in this case, you said removing a tumor. Now it's not within the rest of the body. It's sort of sitting there as its own thing. And you're not necessarily dissecting out everything you would need to dissect. We're actually working on a system now. It's a physical model where you can do just that. And so having some of the connective tissue around it that needs to be, you know, isolated and removed and things like that. Again, I don't want to get too technical, but I think physical models for that type of thing are probably going to be better. There are some virtual models out there and they're very pretty to look at. And they haven't completely taken off quite yet. And the reason for that is the lack of accurate representation of how tissue moves when you hit it. It isn't quite right. And modeling how tissue deforms and interacts with other tissues around it is really hard. And there's a lot of physics behind that, that you know, some of my engineering colleagues around the world are all working on those types of problems. How do we solve some of these soft tissue biomechanical problems so that we can then render them in real time and accurately on these virtual models? That's when the virtual models will really be more effective for training something as complex as what you asked me about, which is removing a kidney. So a lot of people are doing this kind of procedure with robots and the robotic interface is again with a camera so that you're looking at a screen while you're operating. So you could present 
the mechanics of somebody using the robot interfacing with a simulator. Yeah. And that kind of exists too. And But the robot virtual simulators that are out there, most of those exercises, and there are a series of them, and they've had various levels of authenticity to effectiveness to train people to do certain basic skills. They can't model soft tissue behavior. And they try to, it doesn't really work. It looks like jello or it doesn't look real. And so they're great for just navigating and moving around and dexterity of moving things around. But you know, when you're actually starting to get into the complex things we need to do as surgeons, which is dissection and you know, isolating critical structures, they're not quite there for the reasons I just said. And a really important area of development that people, again, have been working on for a while now. And for people who are listening, the human body, like you said, is so complex because we could take the human body in a surgery where nobody has ever operated on the tissue. But we could add a level of complexity if there's been prior surgeries and things have healed, fused, or if there has been infection, or if there's been radiation. All those add a level of complexity to human tissue that doesn't exist in a model of just a normal, quote, body. That's right. You're absolutely right. You're having to engineer all that in because a lot of surgeries are in that type of a setting. And we're all different. Yep, exactly. We don't come off an assembly line. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why it takes so long to train surgeons. Talk a little bit about your mannequins that you use for training medics and, well, everybody, the armed personnel who have to respond to injuries. Most people envision a plastic mannequin that they've seen where they've taken a CPR course and they've watched the plastic mannequin where you do CPR. These are far different. Explain a little of what you've been able to accomplish. We're interested in all these simulation modalities and specifically with mannequins. We were tasked by the Department of Defense and won a contract to build a new platform that allowed all the different types of simulation modalities to actually communicate with each other, whether it's virtual or it's physical, like a mannequin. It's called MOSIS, the Modular Healthcare Simulation Education System. That's what MOSIS is, M-O-H-S-E-S. It went by the Advanced Modular Mannequin when we were building it for the Department of Defense, and now it's open source. And what's really neat about it, it allows anyone, whether you're big lab, small lab, company, to make either a mannequin or a physical part that has some capabilities and then connect and contribute to a greater system and get information from that greater system. You can connect to our physiology engine or other things. And the other thing is when we finish the project, it's all open source. So what that does, to answer your question directly, it allows us to build mannequins or physical you know, parts that are smart, that have the capability to sense what we're doing and give us feedback on our performance and also contribute to the overall model, which is what's happening physiologically with that patient, rather than just being a slab of silicone sitting there that you just do something on. Okay. And whether you do it right or wrong is being assessed actually by, you know, someone on the outside looking at it and seeing, you know, how far CPR mannequins will actually, in some ways did a little bit of that where they'd measure you know, how far you're pushing down when you're doing your compressions. They give you, I think like a, you know, a light or something like that, some feedback, which was great. But now we're talking about, you know, very subtle thing, like administration of 
medications and fluids and drugs and interventions. And if, what if someone's losing blood, what happens then? And it, have it all talked to all the other parts. That's exciting. And it is available for the public through the Modular Healthcare Simulation Education System or MOSES website. So you've developed, uh, along with the engineering department, some skin-like material that really behaves more like the body as you go through layers. You've created ability to show bleeding. We're starting to make the tissue be more dynamic. So instead of, again, just being a slab of silicone there, you know, might it change with temperature or can it develop a wound? And if you do something to it and you do it right, or you give antibiotics, for example, could that wound get better automatically and just change and evolve and morph? These are kind of exciting new areas right now. I have a master's student working on that very project, and she's a bioengineering master's. We're actually starting our own master's program next year, and it's going to be a master's in healthcare simulation science. We're really excited about that. It starts in 2023, and those types of students are doing these really exciting cross-disciplinary projects like this. It's fantastic. I, we're audio, so people can't see, but do you have examples if somebody wants to go take a look at what you're doing where they could find a video clip and actually see one of these mannequins? Yeah, sure. I mean, if you go to crest.uw.edu, you might need to check that offline, but it's there. It's the Center for Research and Education and Simulation Technologies at the University of Washington. If you kind of follow through that, you can find multiple examples of different simulation systems that we've built, some of them completely virtual, some of them kind of a mixed reality, some of the mannequin parts like the advanced modular mannequin and Moses is on there. Since we started back in University of Minnesota, we've done over 53 products in healthcare simulation. And you know, some of them have gone out there and are helping people prepare for their careers and continue to do continuing education. And some of them just sit in our lab. <laughs> so, you know, some of them make it, some of them don't, but we certainly have really enjoyed being able to continue to push this field and contribute. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you have some tissue that if there's not good circulation in the model, it's modeled and dark. And if somebody does the right thing to create better circulation, it warms up, it pinks up, it may even bleed. It can, yes. We're working on that. I, I don't think that's completely done quite like you described it, but yes, that's the vision. And we have some early results that show that it's going to be successful. Yeah. It's truly amazing. Well, anything that you want people to know about that, you know, in this world of evolving technology and the interface with clinical medicine, is there something that you're particularly interested in? There is. And I think that one thing I think will happen here in the next decade, and you're seeing it, and I'm not, I've said this for a while now, and I'm hoping that this is the decade. And I think it is moving this way, is I'd love to see and shift our focus towards using the type of data that we're getting and these systems that we're building in simulation to start, number one, doing more predictive type modeling so that we might be able to predict and help guide therapeutics or treatment planning, even in real time for patients. Obviously, this is through artificial intelligence, machine learning, and things like that. That's where these intersect. And as surgeons, Rich, it'll be exciting to see the next generation of robots that come out that have end effectors on them that with that simulation data on the background, driving it, 
in real time, we may even start to be able to see things that we can't see, tell us information we can't do, and even provide therapeutics in real time, protecting structures that, that we may not even see in the real body in real time. And that isn't there yet, but the pathway to that is a simulation engine behind it. It has to be for these machine learning algorithms to work. You know, having to rely completely on gathering real data from real cases to contribute is going to take a really long time. But if you can simulate over and over and over and over again, we're going to get there a lot faster and it's going to be exciting. And we're going to have the ability to, in some ways, go, it's going to sound scary, a little bit on autopilot when we're you know, doing interventions with patients. There's always going to be a time when the pilot's got to take over. And we're going to need to do that and make decisions where there's ambiguity. But other than that, there's going to be more and more automation. And we're going to be able to do more than we've been able to do before and be safer than we were before. Well, that is the whole goal, to contribute to patient safety and good outcomes and patient care. It certainly is so advanced. If we just look back 10 years and you were talking to me about this, I'd go, what comic book were you reading? <laughs> <laughs> well... Yeah, I, we always knew that this would go in this direction when we were doing this work back then. But uh, I think people are really, I mean, you can see it now for sure. I mean, with all this energy behind machine learning and what our colleagues in other fields are doing, you know, uh, getting more resources and engagement in our field in healthcare, we're going to see this happen very soon. And what we do in healthcare simulation science, it is multidisciplinary. And that's what I love about it. I mean, we have computer scientists that are on our team. We have electrical engineers, mechanical engineers. We have special effects artists from the film industry on our team. As you know, we have sculptors and molders and graphic artists. And it's a small team, but it's so multidisciplinary. People who are, you know, human factors, engineers and specialists. Then, of course, the clinicians. You have this hodgepodge of backgrounds and cultures, and some might call it an HR nightmare. <laughs> I think it's wonderful. And we're all learning from each other and contributing to this new, exciting, and progressing field. Well, it truly is exciting. And I love visiting with you because I walk away just going, that's incredible. And it's becoming reality, like you said. So, I want to stay tuned in and let me know when the next uh, interesting exhibit shows up and I'll be there. But any resources that you could direct people to besides the one that you mentioned that you would want people to be able to find more about this? There are a lot of resources. I mean, one thing I think if you're interested in this field and you come from a background of any of those things I just mentioned, whether it's engineering or healthcare, or the arts and you're looking to further yourself, you're interested in this field, I really apply to be in our master's program and check it out. I think that, you know, 2023, we're going to start, we're going to start kind of small, but it's going to really, this is how we're going to drive the field is by creating an environment where the next generation can gather these multidisciplinary fields and some of the information and the all the vernacular and the way to, to talk to each other and work with each other and getting information. That's how that next step will be taken. It won't, we'll be kind of on the sidelines, probably cheering them on, but we have to train people in this way. 
you know, the future breakthroughs that we're going to see aren't going to come from these silos as have existed. It's going to come from a cross-section of multidisciplinary endeavors like this. Perfect. Well, look forward to hearing and seeing more. And the uh, beneficiaries, of course, will be the patient population of the future. And I just am so thankful for your expertise and your vision and your time. So thank you, Dr. Robert Sweet, University of Washington. Thanks, Rich. It was a pleasure. Love talking to you. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.